We continue now with the second part of our two-part series on the Battle of Fishing Creek with Benjamin Rubin. So when is the first inkling that uh, Sumter gets that he's being trailed? So actually, it's it's not Tarleton that he's originally concerned about. It's the, the forces that are operating on, uh, on the other side of the river, on his side of the river. So um, he's concerned about the, the British posts on the west side of the river, that those guys were going to come after him. Little does he know that, that Cornwallis has actually already dispatched uh, on the morning of the 17th Tarleton to, to chase him down. And it's worth kind of mentioning for a minute, you know, what Tarleton's legion has been through in the, you know, the hours, the, the couple of days leading up to the Battle of Fishing Creek. Um, because it's really quite incredible. They are with Cornwallis at Camden. They make a night march uh, on the night of the 15th, get up in the middle of the night and, and start walking uh, eight miles up the road to the site of the Battle of Camden. Um, they are in the advance guard of the British forces, so they fight a battle in the middle of the night. And uh, you know they fight this skirmish in the middle of the night. They don't sleep at all on the night of the 15th. And then first thing in the morning on the 16th, they participate with the rest of Cornwallis's army in the Battle of Camden and actually play a very decisive role in the British victory. And then, you know, by mid-morning, the battle is over and most of Cornwallis's army gets to rest, but not Tarleton, not the British Legion, which is sent in pursuit of Gates's army. So they spent the entire rest of the day of the 16th up, you know, traveling up the road, rounding up American prisoners, uh, and you know, fight literally until dark, until they couldn't go anymore. Um, and so they have been fighting now uh, for something like 20 hours, right? After starting with that night march the night before, not sleeping, fighting a battle in the middle of the night, fighting another battle in the morning, uh, spending the entire rest of the day uh, in pursuit until nightfall. And then returning to uh, to Cornwallis's army after dark, um, and Cornwallis tells them after only a couple hours rest on the 16th to get up at first light and go chase down Sumter. So it's it's almost unfathomable at the in, within a 72-hour window between the 15th. I guess I guess it's three days um, between the 15th and the 18th, um, which is when the the Battle of Fishing Creek happens. Um, just how much the British Legion did, how, mu how much marching, how much fighting, how little sleeping uh, the, the Legion actually accomplished. So when did they get wind, or where did they get wind uh, that Sumter was nearby? So Cornwallis informs them that Sumter's on the loose because he had found out about the attack on Cary's Fort. He had now received information that Cary's Fort had fallen you know, Sumter's force, which is now the only intact American force in the area, is retreating up the, the west bank of the, the Watery River. And so as soon as he received that information, he, you know, tells Tarleton, you know, get a couple hours sleep and then be back in the saddle chasing uh, Sumter. When did Tarleton realize that he was close to Sumter? So there's a couple different versions of this story. And you know, this is one of those things that historians disagree about. But I think the most, uh, the most likely answer to that question 
is that Tarleton discovered Sumter's proximity on the night of the 17th when they were camped on opposite sides of the fort at Rocky Mount. And so uh, Tarleton arrives on the east bank of the ford after dark, and Sumter has already made camp on the west bank, and Tarleton was able to sight the, the campfires and knew how close he was. Tarleton orders a cold camp that night, so no campfires, uh, so that the Americans would not be alerted um, to his proximity, and then plans to catch Sumter in the morning, to cross the river and catch Sumter in the morning. So then the next morning, he crosses the river. Is Sumter right there? So Sumter had actually moved on. Uh, Sumter had continued up the, the river. And so Tarleton crosses behind him, and uh, from that point is basically trailing him up the west side of the river. And then they come to where? To Fishing Creek. So Fishing Creek is a tributary of the, um, the water. Actually, I guess at that point, it's the Catawba River. Um, so what is there now? At Fishing Creek, so it's near Great Falls, um, and there is uh, there's a dam there, and um, the both the creek and the river have uh, basically been transformed into this reservoir. So the the shape of the terrain near Fishing Creek is very different than it was in 1780. You can still see the outlines of the waterways themselves, but both the river and the creek have expanded quite a bit. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, I'm still imagining that Sumter is really tired that, at this point. And, the, and this whole entourage that he has with him, both friend and foe, everybody's just at their, you know, at the end of, of their physical abilities to, yeah. to keep moving. Yeah, they're exhausted. Um, and they're, you know, crawling up this river. Um, and even though he doesn't know specifically about Tarleton and just how you know, immediate the danger he's in, um, he does know that there are British forces in the area and that he needs to move quickly. Um, you know, he is now very much out on a limb. The, the Continental Army that he was counting on kind of protecting him and shielding him is, is gone. And, I mean, gone, right? The, the army that Gates brought to Camden was not just defeated, it was destroyed as a fighting force. Well, Gates ended up, he never stopped till he got to Charlotte. Yeah, that's right. So um, he yeah. Le he le in fact, he left and he, his guys fighting on the, on the field and he took off to Charlotte. He right? did, and he didn't even stay in Charlotte long before going on to Hillsborough, even oh, further. That's crazy. Um, yeah, so, you know, Sumter is, is aware at this point that he is on his own. So why Fishing Creek? If you've ever been in South Carolina in August, you know, as, as much danger as he's in, you know, marching in the heat of the day is, is absolutely brutal. And, you know, especially for these guys who are mostly wearing, you know, linen or even wool, it's hot. It's extremely hot in, in August in South Carolina. And so, you know, generally armies like Sumter's, you know, in this part of the world at this time of year, are trying to do their their marching in the early morning and in the late afternoon and so in the mid-afternoon when the sun is highest you try not to be moving and so as worried as Sumter is about the danger that he's in there's a, a physical reality which is that his army just cannot push through the hottest part of the day 
And so they decided to stop. Sumter decided, probably correctly, that if he's going to stop, the safest place to stop is, uh, is actually the spot that he picked, which is at the narrowest, part, uh, the narrowest point between the creek and the river. So Fishing Creek itself makes this, if you, if you start at the mouth where it empties into the Catawba River, it makes this kind of S-curve shape where it moves away from the river and then curves back in to where it almost touches the river again. And so there's this very narrow space between the river and the creek, um, and it's up on a high ridge. And so I think Sumter assumed, probably correctly, that you know if he's being tracked, if he's being followed, the safest place to set up a camp is at that choke point. But in comes a, a third factor that, that, uh, that just kind of changes this story altogether, doesn't it? You're, you're speaking about the, the Tory women? The women, yeah. yeah. So there are a couple different stories about how uh, Tarleton found out about um, about Sumter's encampment. But one uh, sort of prominent story is that uh, there were a group of women who moved through the camp um, who were locals who had Tory sympathies. And uh, they walked right through Sumter's camp. They you know, cited it out, the location of it. Um, they noticed that uh, you know the the men were um, sort of at ease, and uh, they continued on to Tarleton, who was not very far away, and informed him of um, you know the the situation. Um, by this point, you know Sumter again he's aware of kind of the broader threat, um, but he is not aware that Tarleton is so close, and. Um, you know, again, it's it's the middle of the day. They're taking a break. Um, the the men, many of them, had gone uh, down either to the river or to the creek, one side one side or the other, to to bathe, to wash up, to you know cool off a little bit. Some of them were sleeping, taking advantage of the the rest to take a nap. You know, weapons had mostly been stacked. Tarleton did, or I'm sorry, Sumter did set out sentries to watch for the approach of opposing forces, but not enough of them and not far enough out. So by the time the sentries give him warning, uh, it's already too late, it, especially considering that um, the Tarleton's men were mounted and moved very quickly. So there's no way for Sumter to effectively alert the camp in time to get the army assembled. So. Now you have this army that's filled with a whole bunch of cows and wagons and prisoners. Uh, when when Charlton comes in and they come through the camp, how does that look? I mean, how did that battle take place? You, we're not talking about linear lines anymore. We're talking no. everybody's kind of meshed up with everybody else. How, how does Sumter get away? Well, so we should back up a second and talk a little bit about uh, Tarleton again, who, you know, Considering what the Legion has been through, you know, as exhausted as the as the American forces are, you know, the the Legion at this point is like just about dropping out of their saddles. And so, right at Fishing Creek, right as uh, Tarleton was about to to cross Fishing Creek, you know, his men sort of almost mutinied. Um, they, you know, the the Legion protests that they absolutely cannot push on. They are, you know, they are exhausted beyond all reasonable 
expectations. And Tarleton was, you know, on the verge of calling uh, a halt there the same way that Sumter had, right? Wait out the middle of the day and, um, you know, press on. But, you know, whether it's, it's the Tory women who walk through the American camp or whether it's one of his scouts, you know, somebody reports to him that he is right there, that, that Sumter is basically just over the next hill just across Fishing Creek and over the next hill. And so Tarleton actually pulls up his command and, you know, basically goes through, you know, deciding who can actually push on, who cannot push on. And so the command that Tarleton had with him is about 180 dragoons of the, um, of the British Legion. So the British Legion, which was Tarleton's own unit, is consists of six troops of cavalry, uh, the dragoons, and four companies of infantry. So it's a, a mixed force. Um, so he had all of those with him, um, about 180 cavalry and about 120 infantry. Uh, and then on top of that, Cornwallis had also given him the British Converged Light Infantry Battalion, which consisted of the light infantry companies, uh, one each from the 33rd Regiment, um, the two battalions of the 71st, the 16th, and uh, the Prince of Wales Light, the Prince of Wales Loyal American Regiment. So each of those regiments had contributed a light infantry company. These had been grouped into a battalion, which were with, um, which were with Tarleton. And so at the Fishing Creek Crossing, he actually, uh, you know, makes this call of who is physically incapable of pushing on and who actually can. And so most of the British Legion infantry was ruled as being essentially unable to continue. Oh, and I'm sorry, he also has one cannon with him. So most of the, the British Legion infantry are ruled as being incapable of pushing on. Most of the cavalry was seen as um, being capable, as were most of the British light infantry. And so Tarleton is able to, to put together a force of about 100 cavalry and 60 light infantry. He mounts the light infantry on the horses behind the cavalry. And so they were, this is something that he did very often. They were gonna move forward at this point, mounted two to a horse, and then dismount at the last minute. Uh, so he leaves behind most of the Legion infantry, as well as some of the Legion cavalry and the cannon. He just leaves it because he decides, you know, Sumter is right there. The element of surprise is more important than those forces. And so uh, he pushes on with, um, you know, with a force of 160 men. Again, Sumter is commanding somewhere between 800 and 1,000 men. And Tarleton decides to attack with 160. Oh. <laughs> because that's, that's just the way he did things. He always valued the element of surprise and quick action over you know, numbers right. or finesse. And so he mounts these light infantry behind the cavalry, you know, these, these exhausted British soldiers, actually most of them were loyalists, but, um, you know, they, they cross the creek, they move towards Sumter. Uh, and so if you've ever been to the area, it's, there's a number of ridges. It's very hilly. There are these little ravines that run down either to the creek or the, to the river. Um, and there's this very thin, very high ridge in between, but it's very hilly. And there are a series of kind of up and down slopes on the hill. And so 
as Tarleton crests one of these hills, he sees Sumter's camp laid out in front of him uh, behind the next hill. And the light infantry, you know, swung off the horses' backs, you know, assembled very quickly on foot. And then these hundred horsemen and 60 infantry uh, were just immediately ordered forward. Just, just charged straight into, uh, into the American camp. So what happened there? Uh, mostly Sumter's men panicked and they, uh, they started running. There are a few little pockets of resistance. The, the Continentals behaved very well. They were able to, uh, so Wolford's Maryland men, uh, they were able to assemble um, very quickly. They didn't panic, but unfortunately for them, um, because Tarleton's cavalry was moved so quickly, uh, it got between them and their weapons, which had been stacked elsewhere in the camp. Um, and so they were not able to, uh, to get to their arms. And so they were surrounded and ultimately ended up surrendering anyway. Uh, Wolford himself was wounded several times. Um, there were another you know, couple small groups of Sumter's men who were able to assemble. Um, some of them did get to their weapons, but uh, there was so much chaos that they weren't really able to, to put up any real organized resistance. Um, there's a couple of little pockets where you know, a group of 10 or 15 men might you know, come together and fire a volley and then you know, have to run because the British were on them before they had reloaded. And so British casualties end up being very, very low. You know, there, there are a couple of British soldiers who are killed and wounded, but very, very few. Although, interestingly, the one British officer of note who is killed at the Battle of, uh, of Fishing Creek is Charles Campbell, who was, um, so he was the commander of the Light Infantry Company uh, of the 71st, uh, I think 1st Battalion of the 71st. So he was a captain. And because he was the senior captain among those various light infantry companies that had been put together, uh, he was commanding all of the light infantry at, uh, at Fishing Creek. And sort of in a, in a weird twist of fate, Campbell was actually the officer who had burned Sumter's home uh, earlier that summer and uh, sort of sent Sumter on his, his trajectory of you know, becoming a, a partisan leader. So in this, this kind of weird coincidence, the exact officer who had, who had taken the action that, that causes Sumter to take the field again, to, to re-enter the war, ends up being one of the only British casualties at, uh, at Fishing Creek. It's unlikely that anybody would have recognized who he was. Uh, Sumter certainly wasn't there. He had, he had taken off by this point. It's unlikely that any of his men would have uh, recognized who who Campbell was beforehand, but they definitely they recognized afterward. And there are several American militiamen who, in their pension statements or their recollections, claim personally to have uh, to have killed Charles Campbell. So I heard that uh, when Sumter fled the field, uh, and that there are there are people who view that as a um, as a, as cowardice in some ways, but he was really just kind of playing along with. Uh, Indian fighting in, in the way they they conducted themselves. But when he fled the field, something happened to him as he was leaving, right? Yeah, so uh, according to, to one story that's, uh, that's repeated in multiple places, and so, you know, 
we always have to be kind of careful with these folk tales, but this is one that shows up in a number of places. He ran out of his tent half-dressed, uh, jumped onto his horse, and uh, immediately ran into a tree branch and was knocked off of his horse. Wow. Um, so sort of a, a you know, inglorious way to, uh, to exit the battlefield. He, he was able to sort of regain his composure and uh, escape after that. And there's this interesting parallel, too, of, you know, this is what Gates had done two days earlier at the, the Battle of Camden. You know, when the battle started to go badly, uh, he had jumped on his horse and abandoned the army. And it's interesting how different, I'm not going to comment on whether this is fair or not fair, but how different the assessment from uh, historians and contemporaries was of these two guys, you know, handling this situation uh, uh, very similarly. Gates is universally condemned for uh, having abandoned the army. Um, and Sumter, while he has gotten some criticism, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of people, you know, would say, well, you know, he recognized the battle was lost. And as a partisan leader, he assumed that uh, his men would do everything they could to escape and reassemble somewhere else, which is in fact what many of them did, right? That by the time Sumter abandoned the field, it, the British were already all through the camp and it was obvious they weren't gonna mount any kind of serious resistance. And so, um, you know, the best thing that, that they could do was escape with as many men as they could and then reassemble later. So why was Gates considered a coward and Sumter was not? So I can give you a couple of answers. One is that I think there was a lot more love uh, among Southerners and South Carolinians in particular for Sumter. You know, in, in the years afterward, he's, he's a native son, whereas Gates was, was an interloper. And so there's, there's a little more willingness on the part of South Carolinians to uh, look the other way when it comes to Sumter. Uh, also, that's the end of Gates's career. So he doesn't get a chance to redeem himself, whereas Sumter does. Uh, you know, he, he did continue in the field and did continue to contribute and won some more victories in the future. And so, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, he gets a chance to kind of redeem himself. Another possible reason is, you know, the difference between the assumptions about how fighting works between the Continental Army and uh, the partisans. You know, for for the Continental Army, the, the Battle of Camden is a pitched battle. And for, you know, the commander of that army to abandon that army, you know, is considered uh, a very poor move for a regular army officer. Whereas partisans, you know, kind of understood the fighting to be more fragmented. And that, you know, if a battle was lost, you abandoned that battle and you lived to fight another day. And so I think people are more uh, more understanding of that. Also, you know, rightly or wrongly, we understand Sumter to have seen that the battle was lost at the moment that he runs. So, you know, and the, the, the battle was more or less over. Um, the retreat was all that was left, right? That was all there was left to do. Uh, whereas Gates abandons his army relatively early in uh, the Battle of Camden, and there was still a lot of fighting left to do. And in fact, you know, his second in command, Johann de Kalb, who would be killed at the Battle of Camden, uh, continued to fight on for quite some time after after Gates left. So I think for all of those reasons, we see those two decisions differently, you know, rightly or wrongly. 
It's interesting to me that uh, if you were to look at Battle of Camden and Fishing Creek, and I think the British looked at it this way, you would think, well, the British have it, the British won, the British, that, that's it for South Carolina, but that's not it for South Carolina. In fact, one of Sumter's group, or Sumter's main men, leaders, Colonel Williams, was actually west of there at uh, Musgrove Mills yep. with some of the over the mountain men, right? With yep. At Shelby on the and, and same day. On the same day that all this was going on, some of Sumter's men were were actually in a pitch battle over at Musgrove Mills and won. Yep, they did. So, um, yeah, the exact same day as Fishing Creek, uh, further to the west at Musgrove's Mill, um, you know the the Western militia, including as you mentioned, some of Sumter's own men, uh, win a, a dramatic victory at, at Musgrove's Mill. And so, you know, from the British perspective, they've just won these two major victories in the, the main theater of conflict. But this is really, you know, this is really a, a kind of microcosm of how the war went in general, right? The, the British keep winning these, these pitched battles in the, the main theater of conflict, but they're never able to put out the fires that are that are burning all around them, and um, you know the the fact that Fishing Creek and Musgrove's Mill happen on the same day is is kind of a coincidence, but it also you know is a perfect a perfect metaphor for how the the campaign uh, would continue to go for the next year and a half. Wow! Thank you so much, Benjamin.